0: You're listening to Devils and Dirtbags, Season 1, Child Molesting Priests. Warning. This podcast deals with incidents of child sexual abuse and the brutal murder of a 13-year-old boy. Listener discretion is advised. Episode 2, The Suspected Murderer, Part 2. Today, we begin with a tale from the 1970s about an apocalyptic Catholic doomsday cult that conducted secret sperm-swallowing ceremonies. The group was led by a former deli clerk who believed he was Jesus' twin brother. Helping him was a Catholic nun who claimed to channel the Virgin Mary and possessed the magical ability to appear in two places simultaneously, known as the power of bilocation. She also had a gang of angels willing to do her bidding. They believed the second coming of Jesus Christ was eminent, and it was going to go down in the small town of Summers, Connecticut, and a new heavenly kingdom would arise on the Connecticut and Massachusetts border, about fifteen miles southeast of downtown Springfield. The group's name was the Apostolic Formation Center for Christian Renewal Incorporated, and the two leaders, J. Roy Legier and Sister Marie Louis Bertrand, were quite the metaphysical pair. Both claimed to be in frequent contact with God and his team, which was good news for their devoted followers who yearned to hear from heaven and regularly sought counsel on spiritual, business, and personal matters. Legier, married with five kids, founded the group in 1968 after decades of preaching the power and glory of the Lord as a devout Catholic while laboring as a factory worker and later in a grocery store delicatessen. He began having mystical experiences in his childhood when the Virgin Mary first appeared at his bedside during a bout with a high fever. As time went on, he received all sorts of messages from heaven, accumulating in an amazing, out-of-body experience during which he and Jesus became one. Literally, souls entwined. From that moment on, Legier believed he was Jesus’ twin brother, incarnate and divine. At the height of his popularity, the group reportedly had 5,000 members on the East Coast, Although the vast majority didn't have a clue about the strange ceremonies, the sex magic, or the coming apocalypse. The bulk of the members of the Apostolic Formation Center for Christian Renewal, Incorporated, were everyday Catholics who had formed Bible study and prayer groups in their local parishes. They were under Legier's male order tutelage. But far away from his headquarters in Summers, a three story mansion previously owned by a former wool magnate. Meanwhile, Sister Marie Lewis quietly convinced hundreds of chosen folks to move closer to Connecticut in order to help prepare for the end days. The nun, by the way, never physically went to the cult's headquarters herself because she was cloistered in the Our Lady of Grace Convent in Guilford, Connecticut about 50 miles away. However, she often purported to be bilocating in Summers in Guilford, demonstrating a special skill usually only possessed by saints, more proof of the nun's holiness, and the groupies believed her. Two dozen of the most devout members, all men, were selected by Legier to become part of a top-secret group called, Our Lord's Emissary Council to restore all things in Christ. Legier formed this inner group based upon a prophecy that 24 mortals, along with Jesus, the Pope, and Legier, would lead the earthly reconstruction in the bleak days following the apocalypse. The select group would act like a city council for the new heavenly kingdom's local government. Now here's the really weird part, According to Legier and sister Marie Lewis, God, in a totally unprecedented move, had decided it was time to spread Jesus' seed via his twin brother, Legier. In what became known as, quote, the divine intimacy of the holy seed, the select group of males masturbated, performed fellatio on one another, cumulating in an ejaculation in order to share <clears throat> the seed. The fellows who participated were reportedly convinced the ritual was the quote “ultimate sacrifice and their submission to God. And apparently, these mostly married hetero-identifying men were under the belief that each gay orgy was a literal infusion of Christ and the quickest way to achieve,, quote, "divine intimacy with their Savior. The ceremony was said to have taken place, on a regular basis throughout the 1970s up to and even after Legier's sudden death in 1978, following the spiritual leader's demise, Sister Marie Lewis told the inner circle that Legier's soul had been split up and distributed among all of them. his 20year-old son Paul, however, had received the largest slice of his father's spirit and would henceforth, the nun proclaimed, be known as quote the Anointed One, and with guidance from a couple in-house Catholic priests, the Anointed One would lead the group. By 1983, however, tales of the cult's sex rituals reached the local bishop who wasn't very happy with the news. Confronted by angry members, the Anointed One and his Catholic priests Trying to quell the fury, explaining that the Lord worked in mysterious ways. The Bible was full of examples of God acting strangely, like when he ordered Abraham to sacrificially butcher his son, or when he turned Lot's wife into a pillar of salt for glancing back at Sodom. Father in heaven above wasn't required to follow his own rules Thus, there was no problem with God ordering Legier and the others to engage in the allegedly sacred act despite the long-standing Catholic ban on homosexual activity. The general membership didn't buy the blather and quickly abandoned the group en masse. Almost all of the 50 chapters shut down. When the dust cleared, a new leader replaced the anointed one, To ensure the anonymity of a victim, we're going to call this new leader Bill Baxter. Baxter hadn't joined the cult until the year after Legier's death and claimed to be unaware of the secret ceremony. So, the bishop put him in charge and told Baxter to clean the mess up. Stop the sex stuff, the bishop ordered, and get rid of the priest who went along with Legier's freakish rituals and quit listening to the nun who claimed to be channeling the Virgin Mary and no more communicating with Mary, Jesus, or the angels through any sort of heavenly psychic hotline. Baxter did as he was told, or so he claimed, the reborn group remained in the mansion and kept the name the same for another year until Baxter officially changed it to the, quote, Our Lady of Grace Formation Center Incorporated. Oddly, the name of Sister Marie Lewis's convent was also. Our Lady of Grace, though Baxter would later claim that was purely coincidental. Soon after, during the summer of 1985, the local paper, the Journal Inquirer, published an exposé about the, quote, divine intimacy of the Holy Seed and the other odd behaviors by the cult. Another story soon followed, detailing Sister Marie Lewis's alleged supernatural powers many of the formerly faithful came forward. They'd been brainwashed, they claimed, hypnotized, mesmerized by LeGier, especially those who participated in his secret sex rituals. To make matters worse, a priest who'd been living in the group's mansion ratted on Bill Baxter, informing the bishop that the new leader still consulted with the crazy nun. Plus, Baxter himself had been telling members of his own godly visions of Jesus and Mary, who'd allegedly been visiting him on a regular basis since he was 12. The bishop, in an attempt at damage control, publicly banished the Our Lady of Grace Formation Center, Incorporated, from the diocese, and a letter was read aloud at every parish in Connecticut warning good Catholics to stay away. Dejected and feeling betrayed, the Baxters and a half dozen other families decided to leave Summers. Baxter sold the mansion and used the proceeds to buy a 200-acre farm in the hills of western Massachusetts, about 70 miles north of their former stomping grounds. Starting over, they took another new name, The Community. And they were prepared to operate on their own terms without nuns or priests or a bishop's blessing, just a devout bunch of the faithful who believed in traditional Catholicism. They'd live communally amid the pastoral landscape with the dream of reviving the farm and leading a prayerful life on behalf of their Lord God and Jesus and Mary and the Holy Spirit and all the saints and angels in heaven above. Bill Baxter, As their spiritual director would lead the way. The community moved to the farm in the summer of 1986. A couple months later, the suspected murderer and child molester, Father Richard Levine, came for his first of many visits. Father Levine revved the throttle of his motorcycle several times in farewell then sped away down the dirt driveway and back to the road. Like many hipster priests of his era, he sought to look cool and unpriestlike, zooming around on his bike, weather permitting, to visit parishioners. Father Levine had just enjoyed another evening with his 13-year-old pal, Mark Baxter, along with Mark's many brothers and sisters and his parents always a good meal and a good time whenever he visited the Baxters. It was the fall of 1986, and for the past three years, Father Levine had served as the pastor of three Catholic churches, St. Joseph's in the village of Shelburne Falls, plus two tiny mission churches, St. John's in the town of Colrain, and St. Christopher's in the town of Charlemont, making him the closest priest geographically to Mark's family's compound. Despite his liberal political sensibilities and ultra-modern notions of Catholicism, Father Levine was welcomed by the conservative group who ignored his politics, choosing to focus on his prayers and the blessing of his Roman collar. The priest, then 46 years old, had just begun to groom Mark for molestation. Like he'd done with dozens of other boys over the preceding two decades. In fact, that evening, Father Levine had convinced Mark to become an altar boy, like his older brothers had been. Soon, the priest knew, they'd be spending a lot more time together. The next step would be to offer Mark odd jobs around the church, which eventually would lead to the kid being invited for a spaghetti dinner and wine at the rectory alone with the priest, then onto sleepovers and overnight trips, and more. Father Levine usually advanced his plans slowly in order to lessen the risk of exposure. Plus, he enjoyed the process of grooming. He viewed himself as an old pro, capable of determining whether or not a boy would be susceptible solely to his charms, or if booze, porn, or dirty jokes would be required to lessen any lingering resistance. Building trust doesn't happen overnight, so the priest always had several boys in his grooming pipeline, and he used his role as confessor for three parishes to be on the lookout for vulnerable families with kids and problems at home. Mark Spokes appreciated the priest’s presence, never suspecting the nefarious reasons behind his interest in the family. The Baxters were under a lot of stress and pretty distracted. Connecticut’s then Attorney General Joe Lieberman was investigating how Bill Baxter had dissolved the assets of Our Lady of Grace Formation Center and inappropriately used the money to fund the new commune which meant a huge financial penalty was probably imminent. In addition, the community's neighbors had been shunning the newcomers. The locals were worried about a cult invasion, spooked by the recent news of Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh and his hippie followers trying to take over the town of Antelope, Oregon. Even worse, some feared a grisly repeat of the Jonestown mass murder and suicide that went down in 1978 in the jungle of Guyana. To top it off, fiscally-minded local taxpayers were concerned about the group's impact on the school budget. Plus, it didn't help that a false rumor was circulating that the community wanted property tax exemptions because they were a religious organization. Needless to say, The situation surrounding the Baxter's household was pretty friggin' nuts, which, for the lurking priest, presented a perfect opportunity. Mark felt lucky Father Levine had taken an interest in him. The past couple years have been tough on the boy, and not just because of puberty and other standard adolescent angst, the implosion of his family's religious world combined with a sudden and dramatic move to Massachusetts, had been hard enough. Now he was entering eighth grade, confronting a new social structure without friends or any knowledge of the local culture. Home life was equally lame. His parents were stressed and exhausted, with zero energy to spend quality time with their kids. Plus, Embarrassingly, his dad had been very public about his personal communications with Jesus and the Virgin Mary, which was slightly mortifying, even for a good Catholic boy like Mark. He had needed a friend, and the priest instantly turned out to be a great one. Father Levine was a real pal. Not only did he shower Mark with attention, he was a fun guy to be around. He liked to roughhouse and wrestle, especially when they were alone. He acted more like an older brother or a favorite uncle, not like a parish priest. Father Levine often brought gifts and treated Mark to restaurant dinners, which was very special considering the Baxter's tight family budget. Father Levine also frequently brought Mark to the cinema at the mall in Greenfield or the Indy Theater down in Northampton to catch a film. On those occasions, the priest wore stylish civilian clothes, debonair almost. In the darkness of the movie house, Father Levine always put his arm around Mark's shoulders, embarrassing the teen, who worried others might spot the affection and get the wrong idea. At the same time, the priest's love and attention made Mark feel blessed. After all, Father Levine was a direct representative of God in heaven above, a holy man worthy of adoration, respect, and obedience and he treated Mark so well, always giving and never asking for anything in return other than companionship. Father Levine gazed out the back window of his A-frame, staring into the woods that surrounded his private refuge, his secret sanctuary in the hill town of Ashfield, a 15-minute drive from St. Joe's, constructed on a secluded lot invisible to passers-by on the dirt road below. He designed and built this rural lair, his pride and joy, a decade earlier. It took a couple of years and a lot of help from altar boys. Free labor, except for the cost of the wine, booze, beer, and food he provided to his teenage workers. The house wasn't grand, but the privacy couldn't be beat. Father Levine designed it so that up to five altar boys, plus himself, could comfortably sleep upstairs, a manageable number, for his slumber parties. Additional boys could sleep outside on the deck and awaken to a wondrous sunrise. There was a kitchen, a bathroom, and plenty of room downstairs to set up his easels so he could paint to his heart's content, landscapes mostly, some seascapes with three masted schooners and other sailing ships paintings of sky and heaven and castles, and occasional still life, as well as religious icons and portraits of saints, like the huge mural featuring St. Luke, the patron saint of artists, painted on the exterior wall of the A-frame. Sitting at his desk, he returned to the missive he'd been typing on carbon paper that he planned to send unsolicited to his boss, Bishop Joseph McGuire. It was a recommendation letter of sorts, quote, From what I have gathered in conversations, these new people have suffered a great deal in bad experiences associated with the former Apostolic Center in Summers, Connecticut. Through their relocation here, they seek the peaceful, communal living that was evidently denied them in their former home. Like all of us, when we are hurt, they are in need of compassion and healing. I can sympathize with them, as I know what it means to be maligned without just cause. Father Levine didn't need to be more explicit. Bishop McGuire was fully aware of the sex scandal surrounding the community. As for, quote, maligned without just cause, the bishop certainly knew about the murder of Danny Croto. Quote, I have spoken to Bill Baxter, who says he met you some time ago, and I found him to be a gentle, ordinary, and sincere man, devoted to the Church, the Virgin Mary, and to common prayer with his neighbor. Frankly, I am very impressed by the piety, genuine goodness, and traditional, albeit conservative, values of this group, and I am not easily impressed. He signed and dated the letter, May fifteenth, 1987. Addressing the envelope to the bishop's Elliott Street mansion down in Springfield, the priest once again gave thanks for being stationed in the diocesan boonies, fifty miles away from scrutinizing eyes like those of the pastors who complained about him back at St. Catherine's and St. Mary's, old biddies who disliked his progressive politics, anti-war sermons, and his affinity for altar boys. The growing shortage of priests was his good luck. Diocese personnel were spread super thin, so Father Levine worked unsupervised on his triple church assignment, free reign to run his rural parishes like a minor fiefdom, provided he kept paying 6% of the weekly collections to the diocese and didn't get into any more legal trouble. The priest thrived in this position Being God's local rep and above reproach was a heady drug. No one criticized his brazen behavior or questioned his time spent alone with young boys. No one chastised him for angrily yelling at crying babies during holy liturgy, and heaven help any latecomers to Mass, for they would incur the wrath of Levine while trying to sneak into a back pew. Despite his quick temper, he was beloved by many parishioners. Compared to his predecessor, who had been hastily shipped away to rehab after drunkenly celebrating Mass, Father Levine was practically an angel. He seemed to really care about his flock, especially the next generation of Catholics. This endeared him to the churchgoers, who were grateful for all the time he spent mentoring altar boys. Of course, the parishioners didn't know he was the lone suspect in Danny's murder or that other altar boys had told police about sexual abuse by the priest. The Springfield chatter wasn't loud enough to be heard in the hills of the Berkshires, and the bishop certainly wasn't going to tell anyone. So his new flock never heard about the perverted late-night rituals during sleepovers at the St. Joe's Rectory, or the drunken debauchery in the basement of his parents' house down in Chickabee, or the priest's indecent acts during frequent summertime visits to a wealthy benefactor's lakeside bungalow in the town of Goshen, or on winter trips to a borrowed Vermont ski chalet, or the sins committed before, during, and after slumber parties at the A-frame. And, supposedly, no one noticed because Father Levine was such a slick operator. Sometimes he'd take groups of boys on camping trips, even crossing the border into Canada, bringing boys to Quebec and New Brunswick. Often, though, the priest would select a single altar boy to accompany him to a faraway vacation spot where no one would recognize them. That's why he wrote the letter to the bishop Father Levine intended to share the carbon copy with Bill Baxter, to show he'd put in a good word, unrequested, with the mighty diocese. The community was hoping to build a chapel on the farm where they could recite the rosary and evening prayers. Under church law, though, to be sanctified as a holy place, the diocese had to grant its blessing. And with the Connecticut scandal still fresh in everyone's minds, The community needed help convincing the higher-ups of their good intent. Father Levine's support might do the trick. Neither the chapel nor the community really mattered to the priest. The letter was just part of the priest's plan to further ingratiate himself with the Baxters. He'd previously written another letter to help Bill Baxter land a part-time job. Quote, a thoroughly honest and decent individual, Levine wrote, whose integrity and leadership abilities are considerably above average. Thus, the Baxters felt indebted to Father Levine. They'd said so themselves on multiple occasions, and now, the priest knew, they wouldn't hesitate when he asked for something in return. Mark felt uncomfortable changing in front of the priest. He didn't particularly like any of the clothes the pastor had picked out for him, and the underwear Father Levine made him try on was super tight. When Mark complained, the priest insisted they were supposed to fit that way. The boy also found it strange that Father Levine chose matching bathing suits for the two of them to wear on the trip, and the purchase of a jock strap, Mark thought, was weird. Mark and Father Levine were in the changing room, together, in a men's clothing store in downtown Northampton, the hipster city, 30 miles to the south of St. Joe's. The priest was adamant that if they were going on vacation together, Mark needed some brand new stuff to wear. And what Father Levine wanted, Father usually got. That was the price of this adventure. But Mark was so excited to visit Arizona, 13 years old, and he'd never left New England before now he was headed west for two whole weeks with Father Levine, and the priest was paying for the entire trip, plus Mark's new clothes. Good thing, because Mark's family didn't have a dime to spare. Phoenix, Arizona, late June 1987. The hot, dry climate felt so nice, totally different than the cold and damp or muggy and buggy of western Massachusetts. Friends of Father Levine, an elderly couple, picked them up at the airport and brought the priest and Mark to their home. After giving a tour of the house and the backyard, complete with an awesome in-ground pool, the couple departed for their own two-week vacation. Mark was ecstatic, a private swimming pool, plus the house was comfortable and close enough to stroll downtown. Mark was looking forward to exploring Phoenix in search of fun places to go out for dinner. However, Mark soon discovered that Father Levine acted differently on vacation, in restaurants, for example. Back in western Massachusetts, sometimes he'd don his Roman collar to get the local priest's discount. In Arizona, though, he was an anonymous stranger, rude to waitresses, and making crazy demands for food and service. Father Levine's behavior was very embarrassing for Mark, who was forced to sit in silence, suffering as the priest berated any poor soul who disappointed him in the least bit. I'll tickle your back, Father Levine said to Mark, then you can do mine. It was almost midnight, a couple days into the vacation, and they were laying in the priest's bed. The Phoenix Knights were sweltering. The priest's room was a cool oasis, thanks to the house's lone air conditioner. After the mutual tickling, which made Mark feel uncomfortable, the boy fell asleep. But not for long, Mark awoke and was startled to discover Levine's hand on his penis. Terrified he couldn't move, he laid motionless for a minute, gathering his courage. Why do you have your hand on my dick? The teen asked loudly. Go to the bathroom. Father Levine said. I'm tired of keeping my hand on you. If you started to go, I was going to squeeze it. (laughs) Considering your history as a bedwetter, it was just a precaution. No one will see us, Father Levine said, splashing pool water at Mark. Come on in. The teen had no interest in skinny dipping with the priest. First of all, it was weird. Secondly, he was having a really good time, just chilling, enjoying the buzz from the three glasses of wine the priest gave him when they returned from dinner. Everything was groovy, except for Father Levine's constant pestering for him to remove his swimsuit. Come on. No thanks. You're no fun, the priest said. Friendship is based on trust. Uh oh, Mark thought. He knew that tone of voice, the precursor to a tantrum his voice getting louder with each word, fiercer with growing fury in his eyes. If you don't trust me, what are you doing here? Father Levine didn't wait for an answer. He climbed out of the pool and stormed into the house, slamming the door shut behind him. For a second, Mark had been scared, because he knew how bad Father's temper could be. But now everything was cool. With the priest moping around inside, Mark could enjoy the pool again, in peace, basking in the wine glow. The evening air was warm. Maybe take another dip in the pool with his trunks on. Why are you walking around funny? the priest asked the next morning. Are you okay? I'm a little chafed, Mark said but I'm okay. The price he paid for practically living in the swimming pool. I am responsible for anything that happens to you while we're on vacation. Go into the bathroom and pull down your pants. Father Levine's voice was commanding. He was back in control. Mark, sober, had returned to his normal, obedient self. Oh no, Father Levine exclaimed, spotting tender patches of red welts. That rash is going to need a medicated ointment, the priest pointed at his bedroom. Lay down on the bed. I'll be in there in a second. I can put it on, Mark said. He didn't want Father Levine touching his privates. Again, no, 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 I'll do it, the priest replied, because there's a right way and a wrong way to apply it. Begrudgingly, Mark did as told, and the priest smeared the medicated lotion all over the boy's body, not just his hips, but his inner thighs and his penis as well. The priest applied the ointment slowly, pausing and talking, determined to make the procedure last as long as possible. You're so trustful, he said. If anyone knew I was doing this to you, I would get fired. You're not going to tell anyone, are you? I'm going to zip these sleeping bags together, Father Levine told Mark as they prepared for bed on their overnight camping trip. Halfway through the Arizona vacation, the priest announced they were going to visit the Grand Canyon, and he let Mark drive practically the entire way, which was a big deal for the 14-year-old. His parents would freak if they knew he was behind the wheel, but Father Levine didn't care. He'd just like to see Mark happy. All night long, in the sleeping bags together, Mark had to forcefully fend off the priest's incessant attempts to fondle him. What's wrong with you? Don't you trust me? Well, did you enjoy the trip? The priest asked Mark on the final day of their Arizona vacation. Yes, Father, Mark replied, not wanting to appear ungrateful. The problem with priesthood is that you can't be yourself, Father Levine said. I like vacations because I can be myself again. You know, if people knew what happened, they might think it was strange. You're not going to tell anyone, are you? Mark shook his head no. Good, because if you did, I'd have to tell your parents about you driving the car and about your fondness for wine. The week since the Grand Canyon trip had been a blur. The nightly wine and constant groping were too much. The priest, six inches taller, 50 pounds heavier and three decades older, kept wrestling the lad onto the bed and easily pinning him down. So Mark had given up and given in. After the Grand Canyon, he stopped resisting. Each night he laid passively while Father Levine committed sexual acts that could send him to prison for the rest of his life. Mark’s mouth full of metal felt unfamiliar. Ever since the Phoenix trip five months before, Father Levine had been extra nice and generous, as if he was trying to regain Mark’s trust. That’s why he paid for the teens braces, which Mark appreciated because there wasn’t a chance in heaven above that his parents would foot the bill for such a luxury. In fact, Mom and Dad told him he was perfect as he was as God created him. Father Levine had a different opinion. He saw a mouthful of crooked teeth and a bad occlusion. Both, he believed, could be fixed with braces and frequent visits to the orthodontist, and Mark agreed. He'd always been sensitive about his lopsided smile and toothy grin, so the teen convinced his parents to agree to the metalwork. What did they have to lose? The priest was footing the $1,300 bill, which is about 2700 bucks in today's dollars. Father Levine hadn't attempted any further molestation, except for the evening they returned from the trip. Mark shuddered at that gruesome memory. Even though they arrived at the airport early enough that Mark could have been dropped off at home, the priest insisted they spend one last night of vacation together, alone at St. Joe's. And there, in the rectory, the priest once again did things evil enough to send him to prison for decades. Mortal sins that under church law, he would be required to confess to another priest. Otherwise, upon his death, Father Levine would be sentenced to an eternity of hellfire, his soul banished from heaven. The memory made Mark feel dirty. The whole situation was bad. The perks, like traveling and braces weren't worth the shame and guilt, he felt, about the creepy, sinful acts. He needed to ease himself out of the relationship, a slow and methodical extraction, otherwise it could get messy, and Mark truly feared the priest's temper and his frequent threats. It's so good to hug you, Father Levine said. Wrapping his arms around Mark, I haven't seen you in so long. The priest's embrace on this mid winter afternoon was strong and tight. The teen endured it for a half minute, then pulled himself away. Where's the clock kit? With cash, saved from his wages working at a local ski area, Mark had purchased a build your own grandfather clock kit. When he ordered it, the priest offered to pay for shipping the big, heavy package. Unbeknownst to Mark, that favor had come with hidden costs. Father Levine called the clock company and changed the delivery address to the rectory. This was an unwelcome surprise for the teen who'd been trying to reduce his time spent with Father Levine. That's why he scaled back his altar boy schedule and taken a job at the ski slopes. He'd been able to avoid rectory sleepovers, and now the special project he'd been planning to build that home had been hijacked by Father Levine. The kit was fairly complicated, large, and unwieldy. Even with help from the priest, the clock would take a week to assemble. And so, Mark accepted the change of plans and spent four of the next seven nights at St. Joe's Rectory, sleeping in the same bed as the priest. Mark was still weaker than Levine, defenseless against his physical and spiritual power, He convinced himself that once the clock project was complete, he'd be able to escape the clutches of the child molesting priest. I'll stop paying for the orthodontist, Father Levine threatened, pointing at Mark's metallic mouth, and see what happens then. Now 16 years old, Mark prayed his boundaries would remain strong. He didn't want to hang out with the priest. I'm very busy with my job and school and friends. It's a matter of me not having enough time as it is. I'm your friend, Father Levine said, and you must visit at least twice a month, or I'll tell your parents about your wine drinking and all the blah, blah, blah. Mark tuned out as the priest recited the litany of his sins. Are you listening? You can't write my research papers anymore, Mark said, when the priest picked him up after school on a rainy day the following fall. My teacher accused me of plagiarism. I don't want to get in trouble. Father Levine shrugged. Oh, well, I was just trying to help. He smiled. Listen, I'm definitely going down to the city for three nights next weekend. He reached across the seat and squeezed Mark's thigh hard. You coming along? The priest knew damn well that Mark would love to visit New York City, another place he'd never been and wouldn't have the chance to visit if it weren't for Father Levine. Life on the farm was tough. They were poor in cash, his dad liked to say, but rich in spirit. Now, even the spirit was suffering. A low, gloomy cloud lingered over the community. A couple months earlier, Mark's younger brother, Peter, was killed in an accident on the farm run over by a truck. Father Levine said the funeral mass and graveside prayers. That brought a tiny bit of comfort amid the great sorrow and sadness, and Mark's dad continued to speak to Jesus and Mary, which was embarrassing. So, despite Mark's shame about the sexual aspect of his relationship with the priest, he was grateful for the vacations and continued to take trips with Father Levine. And the sexual and psychological manipulation continued. He laid there, passive and motionless, waiting for the molestation to be over. And after each trip, Mark vowed to himself that that had been the last time he'd let the priest get away with abusing him. Yes, we're all alone, Father Levine said, lying to the married parishioners sitting in his office at the St. Joe's Rectory. Now, what can I do for you? While the young couple explained a pressing marital issue, Mark sat upstairs on a stool, unable to walk around because the priest had warned him not to make a sound. It was so apparent what they were doing was wrong in a sin. Why else would Mark be forced to hide upstairs? Bored, Mark carefully climbed off the stool and tiptoed to an easel bearing a newly painted portrait of a saint. He reached out, barely touching the edge of the canvas and it tumbled off the easel onto the floor. In the pastor's office, the clatter interrupted the counseling session. I must have left the window upstairs open, the priest said. i have been painting earlier, and the smell of oil paint gets to me. Now, where were we? Upstairs, Mark climbed back onto the stool and didn't move, dreading the punishment he knew was coming. When angered, Father Levine was quick to punch Mark in the testicles. Which hurt pretty friggin' bad. Or the priest might grab the boy by his underwear and yank hard for traditional wedgie. Or the priest might grab the teen's inner thigh, squeezing super hard, hard enough to leave a black and blue mark, a so called cow bite the priest likes so much, one of his favorite moves. Even worse were the times when Father Levine approached him with dark eyes of evil rage, which meant abuse just like he'd done dozens of times before. Mark wasn't going to let Father Levine molest him during the trip to California. The priest had been pestering him for months, begging him to come along on the West Coast adventure. Mark had wavered on going, only agreeing at the last minute. The trip, he decided, would be a test of his resolve, proof that the priest no longer had control over him. In the past, his defense was to become passive and detached, trying to ignore and forget what happened. This time was different. Blackmail and guilt weren't going to work anymore. Mark no longer feared the priest's threat of getting him into trouble with his parents. It finally dawned on him that Father Levine would be viewed as responsible for any of Mark's sins committed during vacation. Mark was ready to take a stand. There is a wall between us, Father Levine complained. Why don't you want to talk about it? Mark didn't answer. California was sunny, hot, and beautiful, and amazingly, Mark had been able to keep the priest from abusing him. It wasn't easy. They stayed in motels and campgrounds, and Father Levine was constantly muckling and grappling. But so far, Mark had staved him off. Talk to me, the priest demanded. Grabbing Mark by the arm, he gave it a twist behind his back and shoved the teenager onto the motel bed. Father Levine jumped onto the mattress, flipped Mark over, and straddled him, pinning the boy by the shoulders. But Mark remained strong, and from the look in Mark's eyes, something was different. You're no fun! I don't even know why you come on these trips! Father Levine didn't like this silent resistance. The priest needed Mark to be compliant and submissive. Out of the blue, the lad's ability to fend the priest off had improved immensely. This new defiance made Father Levine nervous and fearful. You are the only one who knows how I feel, the 48-year-old priest told the 16-year-old boy. They'd been back from California for a week. Mark had made it a 1,000% clear He was done with the relationship and it felt great. Shame, guilt, and sadness still lingered, but at least he'd broken free of the grip of evil. The priest was no longer sacred. He was scared. Mark kept his face blank and his mouth shut. He didn't care anymore. This bastard had molested, abused, and raped him for almost three years. He wondered how long his depression and the sad memories would last. The power dynamic between them had shifted permanently. Are you still friends with Father Levine, the orthodontist asked Mark. Since the man's fingers and tools were in his mouth, tightening his braces, Mark couldn't answer, so he just nodded. For the past couple of months, Mark would occasionally visit St. Joe's and hang out with the priest, just to keep Father Levine from pestering him. And only during the day, never at night, and now Mark had his own wheels so he could leave whenever he wanted, no longer a prisoner or a victim. The last time he visited, the priest had whined pathetically about the state of their relationship, and the older man cried as the teenager drove away. Father Levine sure is a strange person, the orthodontist said, wiping his fingers on a paper towel. He called this morning and left a message saying he was no longer responsible for your bill, said to speak to your father about payment. Mark frowned. There's not a chance his dad could pay. I didn't think that was an option, the orthodontist said. That's why I checked the fine print on the contract you signed. Just so you know, Father Levine is legally responsible for paying for your treatment. It was a brisk afternoon in the fall of 1990. Father Levine had just entered the St. Joe's rectory kitchen when he heard the first car door slam, then a second, a third, a fourth, a cacophony of car doors, and was surprised to see a dozen men from the community approaching the rectory's front door, with Bill Baxter, their spiritual leader, leading the way. Waves of fear engulfed the priest. The group of men looked like a posse or a mob. What the hell did Mark tell them? Father Levine, the community has made a decision. Bill Baxter spoke on behalf of the group standing behind him on the rectory porch. We have warned you several times this day was coming. Your priestly views are not consistent with our beliefs, nor is your modern style of celebrating the Mass. It is not consistent with the traditionalist teachings of the one true church. Baxter shook his head in disappointment. He actually liked the priest. Over the years, he'd been generous to the whole family. Like when his youngest son Peter died, he was there for the Baxters. And lately, he'd been bringing Baxter's eight-year-old son Jimmy on fishing trips and other weekend outings. But this wasn't personal. It was spiritual. You've known our opinion on this for a while, so our decision shouldn't be a surprise. We will not be attending Mass at St. Joseph's Church any longer. There's no room for discussion on the matter. We wish you the best, and God bless you and your parishioners. The rest of the men mumbled their own blessings in agreement. Then, satisfied with the priest's worried look, the group turned and slowly filed off the porch. Bill, Father Levine said, could you stay behind for just a minute? Baxter climbed back up the porch stairs. How does Mark feel about this decision? Father Levine asked watching the man's face closely for his reaction. He's just a boy, Baxter replied. Mark had nothing to do with it. Mark picked up the phone and dialed the rectory's number. He was glad the community had split from St. Joe's. For him, it was a perfect excuse to never have to see the priest again. As soon as Father Levine answered, Mark told him he couldn't visit anymore. Why? Father Levine asked. We've been friends for so long. Why let this ruin our friendship? Instead of answering, Mark said goodbye and hung up. I realized they were only in the parish for what they could get from us. Father Levine, sitting at his desk, looked out the A-frame window at the gray spring sky. He was angrily typing another letter to the bishop, detailing the strange goings-on at the community. I tried to give them a fair hearing, the priest typed. I think it's only a matter of time before things blow up in some way. He signed and dated the letter, April 3rd, 1991. This letter was in case of disaster. Insurance. The summer after high school should have been fun for Mark, but he was so depressed. He'd been an emotional mess all senior year. Nothing was fun. He was always tired and quick to anger. Plus, he didn't trust anyone. He mentally beat himself up for letting Father Levine abuse him. The trauma and self-blame and guilt were strong and ever-present. And the strange graduation card from Father Levine certainly didn't help. Mark hadn't seen or heard from the priest in six months. Then the card arrived in the mail. Dear Mark, now that you are stepping into the real world, there are plenty of decisions you will have to make, the priest wrote and I know you'll make the right decisions. Also, I thought you'd like to know that David Hannum committed suicide. What a creepy thing to write in a graduation card. Mark didn't know David personally. He was one of the many teenage boys the priest had befriended. Father Levine had once told him that they were a lot alike. Mark knew the priest was still up to no good. After Mark's rejection, he'd moved along to another altar boy, a kid Mark knew from a troubled family. On a warm day in mid-August, the buckland Shelburne Community Center was packed with men, women, and children honoring the 25th anniversary of Father Richard Levine's ordination as a priest. Over 300 folks were in attendance, which put the building at capacity. Another 300 people were reportedly turned away. Father Levine celebrated Mass like he had thousands of times before, and he delivered a homily, complete with political undertones, corny jokes, and stern warnings. There was applause at the end, a receiving line, and a church supper. The priest basked in the adoration, accepting gifts and hugging everyone in attendance, parishioners past and present, families he'd consoled, couples he'd counseled, even altar boys he'd molested. When we were kids, me and my brother stayed over at the rectory, and then Father Levine gave us wine, Bob said, and he made us sleep in our underwear so our clothes wouldn't get wrinkled. Friggin' perv. It was a warm night in September, a month after Levine's anniversary party. Mark was hanging out with his sister Lori and her boyfriend, Bob. They'd just been chit-chatting when, out of the blue, Bob mentioned Father Levine. Lori looked at her brother. He was trembling. She knew he and Father Levine had been super close, but these days, Mark never even saw the priest, ever. Did anything like that happen to you, she asked? Mark didn't say a word. He just stared into space, quivering, twitching. Mark, she said softly. Are you okay? Promise you won't say anything. Yes, yes, I promise. You swear, you swear not to tell Mom and Dad? Swear it. I swear. And then he started to talk, slowly, at first without the dirty details. Then the floodgates opened, and there was no holding back. Lori was shocked and overwhelmed. For a moment, she wondered if Mark was telling the truth, a priest doing such terrible things. Unbelievable. But looking at her younger brother, falling apart, sobbing, she knew it was true. She wrapped her arms around him and hugged him tight as she began to cry. Then she started to remember things, like how the priest used to pick up her brother at school and some of the other kids would say stuff about Father Levine being gay, or the time a year before when she saw Mark ripping up a birthday card from the priest, and how he stopped taking calls from the guy. And then she remembered an incident involving her youngest brother, Peter, the one killed in the truck accident weeks before his death when someone suggested Peter spend some time with Father Levine. The eight-year-old broke down crying, threw a fit, and refused to go. "'You need to tell Mom and Dad,' Lori said gently. "'This isn't right.' "'No,' he said, pulling away. "'No, and you better not either. You promised.' "'Listen,' she said. "'He did this to you, which means he's probably doing it to other little boys, too. "'What if he's doing it to the twerp?' she said, referring to their brother Jimmy. "'I know he's brought the little guy fishing at least a couple of times.' That made Mark cry even harder. Lori waited for seven days for Mark to tell their parents, but she knew it had been extremely hard for Mark to admit the abuse to her. Telling their strict Catholic parents would be even tougher, and she didn't want to push him too hard. The poor kid had been through a lot so she broke her oath to her brother. In the last week of September, Lori visited the community's farm and told her parents everything she had learned. They, too, were devastated, especially after coaxing the details from Mark, who initially refused to answer their questions, but then opened up to them as well. Bill Baxter called a family friend, a former state trooper. He recommended a lawyer. Both men offered to accompany Mark and his dad to the Franklin County DA's office. It was finally time to put an end to Father Levine's evil ways. Devils and Dirtbags is written and produced by me, Crash Berry. Thanks to Chris Busby of MainerNews.com and Brian Fitzgerald for editorial assistance. Thanks to Dave Gutter for the theme song. Thanks to my sweet wife, Sweetgrass, for putting up with me and for the musical interludes. And thanks to Dan Berry, a reporter now with the New York Times. But back in the 1980s, he wrote for the journal Inquirer in Manchester, Connecticut, where he broke this story about a 1970s apocalyptic Catholic doomsday cult with a top-secret sperm-swallowing ceremony led by a former deli clerk who believed he was Jesus's twin brother. And thank you for listening. Be sure to visit devilsanddirtbags.com for show notes, top-secret memos, and to learn about my books, my other journalism, and movie, or to send me an email. Next time on Devils and Dirt Bags. Massachusetts State Trooper Susan Mossman was hunting for the priest. She and her colleagues kept checking the St. Joe's Rectory and the church and the A-frame but neither Father Levine nor his car were located. The next day, Friday, October 18, 1991, Trooper Mossman headed 45 miles south to Chicopee. Her hunch was right. Father Levine's car was parked behind his parents' house. She began a surveillance operation and radioed the Chicopee police for backup.